Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. And look at that. Do we get a round of applause for episode 100? I think we do get a round of applause for episode 100. Here we are. This is episode 100. Did I tell you that? It is great to have made it to this milestone. We're funny about numbers, aren't we, in, in certain milestones, but 100 episodes of The Blind Side, averaging probably around about an hour each. Some are a bit shorter and some are a bit longer. Well, that is a nice milestone to celebrate, but what I really want to do is thank you for being on the journey, whether you've been there since the very beginning with episode one, when I think episode one on in this format was when we talked to Jackie Brown about the BCAB, the British Computer Association for the Blind. And I was looking through the list of episodes today. I'm very proud of what we've managed to achieve because the whole objective of the Blindside podcast when I started it was to say there is more to life than technology. You know, technology is important and we've covered it, man. I mean, we've unboxed iPhones before they were even on sale in most countries because New Zealand is, of course, ahead and we're the first country to get Apple products. So that's been fun, sort of waiting for the courier to arrive and sprinting down and running into the studio with various iPhones over the years. And of course, we haven't just done iPhones. We did that big series on the Samsung Galaxy S8. We spoke to uh, Victor Saren from Google about Android. We've uh, tried to keep it balanced. We've covered Windows releases, of course. We've done TVs. We've talked about Blind Square and we went out in Wellington and we demoed things. But we have also covered a lot of other things. Issues with airlines, guide dog issues, including ownership and the issues that were going on in Canada to do with the standards that were being proposed. We've covered, of course, the New Zealand election and we talked to politicians from almost all of the political parties, which is no mean feat because we have a multi-party political system and we've done health and wellness. It is amazing how many emails I still get about the low-carb lifestyle. And it's been an amazing journey. I feel so good and full of energy. And I'm just about there where I have to go into maintenance mode, actually. My BMI, my body mass index, is now like 25.4. When I started this, I'm ashamed to say, with uh, all the traveling I used to do and eating in hotels and stuff and not really taking very good care, it was in the 30s. So now I have a BMI of 25.4. When you go below 25, you're within your ideal weight range. So I'm just about there. And uh, that that's a thrill. So we've talked to a lot of people on email and things about low-carb living. We did hypnosis, didn't we? And talked about the benefits of that. We talked to a Harvard University professor about sleep. We spoke with Lord David Blankett, one of the most senior blind politicians there's ever been. He got to Home Secretary in the United Kingdom. We've spoken to journalists. We really have covered a very wide range of topics. And this is one of the things that I have really enjoyed about doing The Blind Side is that we have taken the approach that there are many facets to being blind. And this is not a tech podcast. It's not a politics podcast. It's kind of a general looking at everything podcast from a blindness perspective. But it would be kind of dull if I talked to myself every week. So thank you to the thousands of people who listen to this thing every week. It's kind of humbling that I can sit here in my little home studio in Wellington and uh, in New Zealand, the capital, and um, just rant away here and know that thousands of people are taking the time to hear it. It is amazing, particularly given all the choice that is out there. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you for making all this happen and for being with me on this remarkable journey. Now, on the podcast this week, I should say that it is a really busy time of year, as you may know. Mosin Consulting 
is pretty busy at uh, iOS release time. We have the iOS 12 without the iBook pretty much in the hopper now and ready to go. And we will be releasing iOS 12 without the i probably a day or two before iOS itself drops so that you can purchase the book. We found that we caused more problems than we solved by offering pre-orders because then when we would distribute the book en masse, certain email services, particularly Gmail, would get very grumpy with us and the mass orders kind of often went into people's spam folders. So we don't do pre-orders anymore. And to compensate for that, what we do is we issue the iOS without the iBooks generally a couple of days before the official iOS release date. So that page will be going up quite soon, and I'll tell you more about that as the date gets closer. We have a number of other things going on at Mosin Consulting as well. We are, by the way, going to be, of course, covering the um, the big Apple reveal, which we expect will be on the 12th of September. Apple may surprise us, but that's the day I have penciled in my calendar at the stage for Apple things, uh, the 12th of September US time. And then the question is, are they going to do something radical enough that makes me think, okay, as a business expense, I have to buy this year's iPhone to write about it and teach it. I'm actually quite happy if I can hold on to my iPhone 10 for another year. It's serving me well enough. But obviously, if there's some killer new feature that I need to write about for the book or for it or for, for any other business purpose, then I'll get one of the three new iPhones and we'll do an unboxing, of course, and show you what it's like. So there's lots to come. But all this means I haven't had too much time for the Blindside podcast this week. I've got a whole bunch of interesting stuff coming up for the home automation episode. And I know I've been promising that and I do hope to get to it next week. On the podcast today, I'm going to be playing you something that I presented back in March of this year. It was just before I went to CSUN. And to give you a bit of background on this, you may remember that we've covered here on the Blindside podcast what happened to me with the 2018 census here in New Zealand. Statistics New Zealand, which is the government statistics department, decided that they would try making filling in the census online the default, and that if you weren't able to do that, you could request paper forms. Now, of course, for blind people like me, that's absolutely cool. Because as long as the website's accessible, it's far easier to just go online and fill in the form online than it is to try and grapple with a paper form. Except that the code that you had to enter to identify yourself when you logged in was not provided in an accessible format. It was done in Australia a couple of years ago. It is done for New Zealand elections, ironically enough. One of the most sacred things you can do. Vote in an election and they will give you a code. They'll text you a code to do that in New Zealand, but they won't text you or email you a code to get into the census. And so this became a bit of a national news story. I mean, I chose to make it a national news story. And I am actually going to be speaking to a select committee of parliament about this very issue in mid-September. Maybe we'll be able to get some audio of that for you on the Blindside podcast. Well, back in March, after all this hit the news and there was a lot of talk about it, I got approached by some people at the All of Government Lab, and they are doing some very interesting things at this All of Government Lab. They're blue skies thinking, they're really giving some thought to how can government be more inclusive thanks to technology, be more technologically focused and resilient and responsive. 
So when they heard about my census issue, they obviously recognized that this is a fundamental technology problem, right? Because, I mean, these codes started on a computer and then they were made inaccessible by virtue of being printed out and not being sendable in some sort of accessible format. So the All of Government Lab approached me and said, would you like to come and talk to us about general accessibility issues? And they made it clear that they had some very tech-savvy people in their midst. So if I wanted to geek out in this presentation, I could, which is something I don't usually get to do. And so I went along and I spoke to the All of Government Lab and they were great and they were really receptive. And I felt that it was a worthwhile thing to have done and that I might have had a bit of impact. Well, a wee while ago, Siobhan from the All of Government Lab contacted me to say that they'd actually made a recording of this. And I said to them, would you mind if I take it and use it for the Blindside podcast? Slightly expurgated because I had a bit of a PowerPoint um, meltdown in the middle. My own fault for leaning on the space bar when it was in the, in the slideshow view. So I've cleaned it up a wee bit and I've also used some local audio for some of the demonstrations that I did. And I thought that I would play this to you partly to, I guess, demonstrate how I do advocacy here in New Zealand and elsewhere on issues like this, and also to perhaps give you a bit of a picture of how you might explain accessibility if you have the chance to do a similar presentation and to familiarise you further with the way things are done here in New Zealand. So I hope that you will find this presentation useful. Me live, recorded live anyway, at the All of Government Lab in March of 2018. These days, most people have a good understanding of what it takes to make the built environment accessible. So I want to start there and begin by drawing a parallel between physical access and access to information. So imagine that you're in a wheelchair and you can't get into a public building because of a long flight of stairs. Now, an official inside that building that you want to visit walks down to the bottom of those stairs and lifts you out of your wheelchair and carries you up to that top of those long flight of stairs. You're then deposited on the ground because the official then walks back down the stairs, picks up your wheelchair, carries it up the stairs and then places you back in the wheelchair. Now these days most people would agree that that's not acceptable. It's a workaround. You've got into the building that way, but the building remains inaccessible. It also means that if you're in that wheelchair, you feel humiliated. Your dignity has been taken uh, for, for a ride. You've, been taken, you've taken a hit for that. Now imagine that you're blind and you use a computer or a smartphone equipped with a screen reading package and you receive an important document from a government department in the snail mail perhaps because of the way that it's formatted or because you don't have access to optical character recognition software, you're unable to read that document. And somebody from a government department or a helpful friend or a family member agrees to read that document to you. That is no less acceptable than the physical building scenario. As a blind person, you're not reading the document yourself. It's being read to you. The document isn't accessible. The inaccessibility has been worked around. And in an era where all information begins life on a computer, there's no excuse for not making every piece of government information fully and independently accessible to blind people who have the appropriate technology to read it.
Let's start with first principles and look at the impact of blindness. And in my view, there are two fundamental barriers that can make blindness problematic. And that might surprise you. You might be thinking of dozens of things right off the top of your head that are frustrating about being blind, ranging from not being able to drive a car to identifying the can of dog food from the can of peaches. Believe me, if you get that wrong at a dinner party, you're in trouble. <laughs> but I contend that there are actually, those are symptoms of the two barriers of blindness, just two. One is the information barrier. Blindness is fundamentally an information disability. And I use the term information very broadly. Information can be the printed word, data that helps you determine who someone is or where someone is located. Anything at all that tells you about the world around you. Now, sight is a very dominant sense. You can process a lot of information quickly if you have it. And most people, of course, do have it. So naturally, they become highly dependent on it. So our society has been structured in a way to cater to the vast sight-dependent majority. After all, if the can of dog food had a button on it that when you pressed it spoke the name of the product, or for that matter, a braille label, blindness would pose no barrier to identifying what that product is. Being blind doesn't stop me from driving a car, but the way cars are built and our road system that is dependent on obtaining information visually are the barriers. A blind man, Mark Riccobono, proved this when he drove a car almost a decade ago. He's totally blind. The car was built to provide him with information in a non-visual form, and he cruised the Daytona Speedway in the United States. This was no self-driving vehicle. This was a blind man making judgments about navigating his vehicle, when to turn, when he was getting close to something, because the information was being conveyed to him in a way that was accessible to him. Now, this concept of society being structured in a way that causes certain uh, people to be disabled is acknowledged in the wording of New Zealand's own disability strategy. Its mission is, and I'm quoting, New Zealand is a non-disabling society, a place where disabled people have an equal opportunity to achieve their goals and aspirations, and all of New Zealand works together to make this happen. And indeed, an entire outcome is related to accessibility. And that leads me to the second barrier of blindness, attitude. Some people who are highly sight-dependent find it difficult to imagine how someone deprived of sight, either since birth or perhaps later in life, can possibly function. And when people's notions of what's possible are limited and expectations are low, discriminatory public policy results because an action or a failure to act doesn't have to be malicious in order to be discriminatory. As someone who has designed blindness technology products and trained people in their use as well, I've seen the impact that the digital age has had on blind people. For those with the tools to take advantage of it, it's nothing short of a revolution. And I want to spend some time explaining how accessible information has changed my life, my quality of life for the better. Because when you understand the difference that it makes, I believe it would be very hard not to be passionate about ensuring that New Zealand is exemplary in its provision of accessible information. When I was a kid, 
I used to pester my sighted siblings who were older than me to read me the newspaper because even then I was a news junkie. Now, not only do I have access to my local newspaper on the web, I can read newspapers from all around the world. And that is a really remarkable thing because for the first time in history, a blind person with access to the internet has more information at their fingertips than a sighted person who doesn't have access to the internet. That is a huge turnaround. Imagine the indignity of having to rely on a volunteer or a family member to read highly personal financial information to you. Or even worse, walking into a bank to ask a teller for your bank balance. And since everyone knows that if you're blind you have to speak really loudly to them, <laughs> being told by the teller at the top of their lungs, you're $500 overdrawn, Mr. Mosen. Now I can conduct all my own financial transactions with privacy and dignity just like every citizen should. Imagine receiving medical information in a form that isn't accessible to you, so you have to rely on somebody to tell you something deeply personal, potentially life-changing and maybe embarrassing. Now the online availability of medical records means that blind people equipped with the correct technology don't have to be subjected to that indignity. Online shopping has, if you'll pardon the expression, opened my eyes to the degree of consumer choice that exists. When I did my first online shop on the count, that was the Woolworths site in those days, I was utterly staggered by how many varieties of bread and milk there were. I really had absolutely no idea how many choices people were confronted with. And the list goes on. Suffice it to say that blind people now have a level of independence and dignity and social participation that we've never had before. But that assumes two important things. First, that websites and other information are accessible. And second, that blind people own the tools to take advantage of accessible information. Let's look at the demographics of the blind community in 2018. Now, not every New Zealander with a vision impairment is registered with the Blind Foundation. That's a point I'll come back to. But in July 2016, there were 12,272 people registered with the Blind Foundation. Of those, in the 0 to 21 age group, you had 9%. 22 to 64 was 27%. 65 to 79 was 16%. And 80 plus, a massive 48%. While it's important to realise there are exceptions and it's always dangerous to generalise, we can make some assumptions about these numbers. With almost half the blind population over the age of 80, we know that many people become blind later in life due to age-related conditions such as macular degeneration. And blindness may just be one of the disabilities that seniors are grappling with. The onset of sight loss later in life can cause grief and depression. And while some people will be willing to use technology and other aids to mitigate their blindness, others will feel defeated. Additionally, today's seniors aged 80 plus may not have had access to computer technology when they were sighted, or they may find the idea of using talking or large image technology too daunting with everything else they have to deal with. A very small number, you could probably count them on the fingers of one hand, in this group, the 80 plus will choose to learn Braille.
I believe this picture will change somewhat in the coming years. The next generation of seniors are likely to be more assertive. They have money to spend on technology that can ameliorate their disability and they will be increasingly willing to do it. They will also be familiar with online access and other recent technologies before becoming blind. For now though, it's important that we don't lose sight of lower tech means of accessing information. These include reading important documents that could be produced in the Talking Book Studio of the Blind Foundation and they could be distributed on CD from the Blind Foundation on behalf of a government department. Or they might be produced over an interactive voice response phone-based system. Traditionally, this kind of material has been read by human narrators. But increasingly, taking a document and converting it directly to high-quality digitized speech is a viable option. The technology has advanced from speech engines sounding very mechanical and being purely synthetic to text-to-speech engines comprising digital samples of humans. They actually have people who they get to go into a recording studio for weeks at a time and record little phrases and phonemes, the building blocks of language, so that they're capable of saying anything. Today's high-quality text-to-speech engines are now almost indistinguishable from real human speech. This facilitates the rapid distribution of information in audio, either over the telephone or on CD, to benefit people who don't have online access. The creation of text-to-speech engines now involves people with a wide variety of accents and vocal types going into a recording studio to record phonemes, the building blocks of language. This allows the engines to say anything at all. There you had two examples of text-to-speech engines, one with an American accent and female, and one that uh, has an Australian accent. I'm also excited about the potential that smart speakers have for delivering certain types of information to the senior blind market. People who don't want to use a computer, the kind of person I was talking about who's just daunted by the whole thing, but if the user interface is natural enough and intuitive enough, um, could get some information this way. So clearly con security concerns will mean that smart speakers will never be an appropriate delivery mechanism for highly sensitive or personal information, but they could be used for general government information that's usually only available online. To give you an example, I, um, through my company Mosin Consulting, operate a podcast. It's kind of a current affairs podcast on blindness issues. And to experiment with this and to kind of widen the reach, because we cover issues from a blindness angle that mainstream media tends not to be interested in, we created an Alexa skill for the Amazon Echo, which is now the only device uh, officially available here, so that we could experiment with what happened when people tried to access the podcast by voice. So it goes a bit like this. Alexa, enable the Blind Side Podcast skill. Okay, here's the Blind Side Podcast with Jonathan Mosen. Welcome. You can listen to all the episodes of the Blind Side Podcast, including new episodes, as they are released. For now, you'll start with the most recent episode, but you can change by skipping forward or backward. You can even say how many episodes you'd like to skip. The newest episode is The Blind Side Podcast 76. New Mexico students talk with the space station. 
New Zealand senses problems and reflections on the power of self-advocacy in the digital age. Would you like to listen to it? No. The previous episode is the Blind Side Podcast 75, our very own Alexa skill, adjusting Spotify Podcast PLLA back, Samsung Galaxy S9, Delta C's Sense, Ada Gutting Passes the House, Anna Dresner's new book, You and Your Apple Watch. Would you like to listen to that? Alexa, stop. Goodbye. Alexa, what's the weather like outside? Currently, in Grenada Village it's 20 degrees Celsius with partly sunny skies. Today, you can expect lots of clouds, with a high of 20 degrees and a low of 15 degrees. Some of the initial tests that I've done um, with users of this have really got me excited because Alexa is, is, is permanently patient. There's nothing touch-related to, um, to worry about. When you set it up, obviously it requires computer skills, but somebody could come in and set up an Amazon account for the customer and get that initial configuration process done. And once it is done, they can pretty much operate the entire thing uh, independently and by voice. Now, there are some social policy considerations, which are in general, I think, beyond the scope of this presentation, but they are worth mentioning briefly. A lot of the higher quality blindness-related technology that facilitates employment is expensive. And some blind people in New Zealand presently find themselves in a catch-22 situation where they can't get equipment until they have a job, and they can't get a job because they haven't learned how to use the equipment that would allow them to go into a workplace and be productive. Blind people with insufficient vision to see a screen or for whom viewing a screen is a time-consuming process can access computers and smartphones using screen reading technology. This software runs in the background and uses text-to-speech to tell a blind person what's on the screen. Optionally, a blind person can connect a refreshable braille device such as the one I'm scrolling through my notes on now and they can be connected via USB or Bluetooth so that a blind person can read in Braille what's on the screen of a computer or smartphone. For those who know Braille, that has significant benefits, such as the ability to easily determine formatting or to proofread in detail. Screen readers now come built in to all major operating systems, including Mac OS, iOS, Android and Windows, and for that matter, Chrome OS. So you can pretty much, if you know how to do it, you can walk up to pretty much any computer in the world now and make it talk. In the case of Windows, while Microsoft's free option, Narrator, is becoming increasingly capable, the dominant player is a third-party screen reader called JAWS. It's a powerful product and it was originally designed for blind people by blind people, and it's packed with features. Not only does it allow robust access to the standard Microsoft applications, it can also be customized to work in proprietary environments, such as those commonly found in workplaces. So if somebody gets a job at a call centre, for example, there may be a little window on the screen that pops up when a customer calls in based, say, on caller ID that tells somebody who's quickly glancing at the screen who the customer is, um, the kind of interaction that the company has had with them. We can set JAWS up so that by pressing a key, that window is automatically spoken, even just the relevant information from that window. And that's what's allowing blind people to be so productive on the job. Windows, Android, and in theory, Mac OS, are sufficiently open that third-party developers can create new screen reading solutions. 
Now that isn't possible in the case of iOS um, because iOS uses a sandbox approach where apples are pretty, where apps are pretty much isolated from one another. Um, and that means that um, unless Apple put in some sort of screen reading API, which they haven't, then no third party screen reader could be created for iOS. Some people with usable vision choose to use screen magnification software. As well as just making the text bigger, it can invert and otherwise alter the colors of text for better visibility. The market here is like that for screen readers. All operating systems now come with some magnification features built in. In Windows, the most popular magnification option is again a third-party tool called ZoomText, which offers many more customization options than any of the free alternatives do. Windows screen readers used to rely on an off-screen model. I don't often get to give this geeky slide, but I'm assured that um, you know, there's a geeky element here, so I can talk about this. Yes. Windows screen readers used to offer an off-screen model. And what that would mean is that they would put a device driver in the display chain to intercept screen data before it was sent out to the actual physical monitor. So it's kind of like chained itself in, intercepted the data and passed the data through once it had been dealt with. Now they would then use a database of common graphical elements to inform a user about what was on the screen and the kind of control that was in use, often giving advice about how to interact with that control from the keyboard. As screen readers have made it onto Microsoft's radar, there are now better techniques for giving screen readers access to commonly used applications like the Microsoft Office Suite. An API means that a screen reader can interact now directly with a Word document. For example, giving unambiguous information about the formatting and layout of a document and providing easy keyboard navigation between elements of the document if it's well structured, if it's making good use of styles. So a blind person ends up actually interacting with the document itself and not the screen. When a blind user goes into a web page, the actual HTML is now loaded into a buffer in the screen reader, which is constantly being monitored and refreshed as needed. And that's important in this era of dynamic content. It allows a screen reader to offer keyboard shortcuts for navigating between elements on the page, like headings, links, and different form controls on the page. So it's a very efficient experience. Despite the lower cost of um, some Android devices, iOS is the most popular mobile operating system in the blind community because of the powerful screen reader built into it called VoiceOver. It's just a much more mature product. Apple invented a breakthrough paradigm for touchscreen access, something that blind people used to fear and consider inaccessible. It was just considered automatically that touchscreens equal inaccessibility. And the breakthrough came from Apple back in 2009. The idea is a simple one, that a blind person explores the screen by touch and they hear what is under their fingers. And then they confirm when they want to actually engage with an element by double tapping that element. This paradigm has also been picked up by Android, which is catching up and becoming increasingly capable, but still has a long way to go compared with iOS, and it's also now used on Windows devices equipped with touch. The gesture set varies a little bit from operating system to operating system or even screen reader to screen reader, so that can create a bit of a learning curve for blind people as they try and work out how to engage with different content. 
The blind community isn't immune to the move away from personal computers to smartphones for certain types of tasks. Mainstream apps, such as Google Maps and Apple Maps, are accessible. Not all mainstream apps are accessible. It's the same way as any other operating system. They have to be designed in a way that makes use of the accessibility provisions of the operating system. Blind smartphone users are surfing the web and clearing their email, texting, and using social media. A wider range of books is available than ever before to blind people because of Kindle and iBooks being accessible. In the old days, we would have to wait. When a bestseller came out, and if you were at a workplace, everybody was talking about the bestseller around the water cooler, and blind people would have to wait until it was recorded by the Blind Foundation onto Talking Book or put into Braille, and sometimes it just wasn't because it's impossible to modify every book in that way. Nowadays, though, you can just grab the bestseller from iBooks or Kindle the moment it comes out, like everybody else, if you have the tools to do that. Blind people are also using commercial providers of audiobooks, such as audible.com. There's also a wide range of blindness-specific smartphone apps available, including optical character recognition. So if I'm at a restaurant and I need to take a picture of a document, I can snap it and read the menu. Blindness-specific navigation apps, they tend to tell you a little bit more than navigation apps for sighted people. So Sighted people will generally just want directions, whether they be walking or driving, at the, at the roundabout, take the first exit or turn left onto the street. But of course, a blind person wants to know, what businesses am I passing? What's the street ahead of me called? Because you can't get that information visually. And so blindness navigation apps do that as well. Color identifiers, always very important. And if I don't look right, then the color identifier app has failed. Light detectors, I have no light perception at all. So um, sometimes my kids leave the lights on and I can wander around with a light detector and save myself a bit of electricity by turning the lights off. Object identification, help with visual tasks. So you can summon up someone from halfway around the world and um, ask them well, any, any number of questions, really. Currency identification apps. So if you've got a whole bunch of notes and you don't know what they are, it avoids you being, well, robbed blind, as it were. Uh, let's scroll to this one. If government can identify that a blind person can read electronic information, then in my view there's no reason why such a blind person should ever receive a piece of printed information in the mail. Since um, Siobhan mentioned the census, what happened to me in that instance was bizarre because I have actually filled in the census uh, twice before online and they did a fantastic job of making it an accessible experience. The difference between this time and the last two times was that this time, of course, the codes were being sent by snail mail in print. So I got the code and I pointed my iPhone at the census letter with the code in it. But at the top, I think it was at the top, but somewhere in the census letter was some text in Te Reo Māori, which is absolutely appropriate. I'm not complaining about that, but what it did mean was that my OCR software was getting confused about what language it was scanning. And so I had my letter. I was capable of completing the census online. What I couldn't get was the code. <laughs> and so I called Statistics New Zealand and I said to them, look, I'm, I'm perfectly capable of doing this if I can just have a way of getting the code in an accessible format. Can you give it to me? And at first they said, yes, we'll email it to you. And then they said, no, we can't. 
and they ended up sending the Wellington regional manager for the census to my house just to read the code. <laughs> Whereas um, in, in Australia, in the 2016 census, blind people were able to call a number and say, look, I'm blind, uh, here's my details, can you text me or email me the code? And in Australia, they did that, no difficulty at all. Also, by way of contrast, blind people can now vote independently over the telephone, and that involves completing a statutory declaration um, that says, uh, you do it over the phone, that, that says I'm blind and I can't complete the voting process in the normal way, at which point they will text or email you a code, and you call back on election day or whenever voting is open, you give that code, which makes you anonymous because you're talking to somebody else, someone different from who you registered with, and you cast your vote. So there's already a precedent for this within the New Zealand government that somehow Statistics New Zealand isn't following. And that really comes back to some of the preliminary discussions we had before we formally got going about um, silos and um, there being no coordination about how to deal with questions like this. So information will have started on a word processor. At my code that I was so desperate for would have been generated by a computer. And then it was printed out. So rather than being printed out, it simply needs to be distributed electronically in an accessible format. Now, in terms of what format to use, Word, HTML, and PDF are all viable and accessible formats. The caveat here is that it's important not to distribute a PDF file that contains an image of a document. I did write to the, to the Office of the Minister of Statistics with a complaint about the census process, and I got an acknowledgement to my complaint about inaccessibility and it was contained in a PDF file that contained an image of the reply. <laughs> I had to write back to the minister's official and say, you know that complaint I made about the inaccessible census? Well, your reply is inaccessible. So, you know, we, we've got a lot of work to do. And I think it's, it's, an, it's inherently solvable with the will to find some sort of... Um, uh, government-wide strategy or some sort of clear set of guidelines that must be adhered to for information to be made accessible. And there you have it, my presentation to the All of Government Lab in Wellington. Thanks to them so much for inviting me and for letting me use the recording. If you would like to be in touch with the podcast, well, the usual methods apply. You can drop me an email in which you can write something down or you can attach an audio clip if you prefer. The email address is theblindside at mosin.org. You can also call the feedback line. That number is 719-270-5114. That is in the United States, 719-270-5114. And I look forward to being back with you for episode 101. Imagine that. I don't think I have 101 Dalmatians in the studio. Though that could be a bit noisy. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.